Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Steve Kornacki, the national political correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. It's officially Kornacki season in America, which is another way of saying it's election season. This week, voters across the country flocked to the polls in what looked like record numbers to cast their ballots in the 2022 midterm elections. Steve, as MSNBC's data guru, will be manning the network's big board as the results come in Tuesday night. And you'll likely see him throughout the rest of the week, given how tight some of these races are. I called up Steve on Monday, on the eve of the election, to get a sense of what to expect, how he prepares for his marathon election coverage, and what history tells us about how these midterms will go down. Steve, I'm very, very excited to speak with you about what we have in store for Election Day. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, happy to do it. Nice break from uh, steering at spreadsheets. <laughs> I can imagine. That screen probably gets a little tough on the eyes after a long time. Yeah. Uh, my first question, are you ready? No, but give me another month and I probably still won't be. I'm, I'm ne- I never feel ready going into these things. That's, I think, surprising for the many people that watch you. Uh, <laughs> now, polls close Tuesday evening. Broadly, what's the state of play between Democrats and Republicans right now? Yeah, so you got the House, you know, uh, Republicans need to pick up five seats to get the House. Um, history certainly says that's doable for the opposition party in a midterm. Um, you just look at the way the maps are are kind of drawn this year. There's a couple of pretty obvious pickups I think Republicans are going to get just because, you know, they do redistricting every 10 years. This is a redistricting year and some of these new lines are favorable to Republicans. Um, you add in, you know, Biden's you know, approval rating, attitude towards the economy, that sort of thing. Um, it would be, you know, it's not impossible, but it would be a, a you know, an upset for the ages if Democrats ever held on to the House. Um, the Senate at 50-50 right now with the Democrats technically in control because Kamala Harris breaks the tie. Much different story. I think there's a lot more suspense around that one. And one of the possible outcomes, in fact, is that there is no answer. And we go to a runoff in Georgia in December and that runoff decides the Senate control. That's not impossible at all. Right. And so what are the polls saying right now about what the chances are that Republicans take a majority in the Senate or uh, in the House? Yeah, I, like I said, in the House, I think it, it suggests they just don't need much in the House. Right. That's that's the thing. So even a, even a night that that would be overall kind of disappointing to Republicans and that Democrats could point to and say, hey, we didn't do that bad, could still absolutely involve Republicans taking the House. It's just it's it, it, it's just that um, it, it's that small of a margin on the Senate side. It really I mean, there's just a bunch of races here that um you know, they, they look, if you look at the polling average, they're within a point or two or less. Um, Pennsylvania, you know, Nevada, Georgia, suddenly at the last minute here, New Hampshire seems to be falling into that category. I think for Democrats, it's they've got to win Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania right. is technically a Republican seat right now. Pat Toomey's retiring. Um, it's the one where Democrats, you know, Biden won it uh, all year. Fetterman has, you know, at least until recently led in the polls. If Democrats can get Pennsylvania, it means if they blow it in, say, Georgia or Nevada, they can absorb one loss in a seat you know, that they already hold, you know, counter it with Pennsylvania, still hold the Senate. So I, I, I think Pennsylvania is the single most important just in terms of to the math of Senate control. OK, so those if we're talking about key races there, you're looking at Pennsylvania, you're looking at Georgia, Nevada. In the last couple of weeks, it does seem like the polls have been trending towards Republicans. Is that momentum that you're seeing in the polls? Does that 
Does that matter much as we go into tomorrow? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think in some of these, it's tough to measure, but you know, you look at like Wisconsin, I think at the start of the year, everybody thought Ron Johnson was an extremely uh, endangered incumbent. Um, and Ron Johnson in the past has been uh, 2016 all year. Everybody thought he was a goner. And then on election night, they look up and he won. So he's found himself in a very weird position for the last two months where he's led in just about every poll I've seen in Wisconsin. Um, so if there's a polling miss in Wisconsin this year, it would be the opposite of what we've had before. It'd be, it would be, it would be overstating the Republican. We haven't seen that in Wisconsin, mm. uh, in, in recent years, but, um, yeah, there, there's been movement in Wisconsin in the polls. Um, I think there's been some in Ohio where, you know, JD Vance, um, Tim Ryan has been kind of stubbornly close to JD Vance in the polling. Um, but the, the, the latest polling does seem like there's some distance there, uh, in Vance's favor, uh, North Carolina, kind of a similar story. And like I said, New Hampshire, you know, just kind of been off everybody's radar. It is a quirky state politically. Uh, mm. Trump almost won it in 2016. It swung pretty hard towards Biden in 2020. Republicans really tried nationally to recruit what they thought were some tough, but some top-notch candidates into the race. They just failed completely. And yet the 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 guy who won the nomination, Don Bolduc, you've got polling now that's got him, you know, close to tied in that race. And it's it doesn't seem impossible to me that he could pull that one off. And are there certain key metrics that you're looking at that could serve as bellwethers for what's happening around the rest of the country? Yeah, I just think it's 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 the early races. Uh, you know, it's just seeing what gets called first. And, and there are a couple of storylines. You know, so right away, 7 p.m. Eastern time, all of Florida closes except for the panhandle. And Florida is really efficient at reporting out its results within basically within a half an hour, give or take of the polls closing. You'll get about two thirds of the vote from every county that's not in the panhandle. Wow. Um, and that's their early and mail vote combined. It's a little bit more Democratic friendly than the same day vote. So basically, that first big chunk that gets reported out in every county in Florida is going to be as good as it gets for the Democrats. And the name of the game in Florida is always, you know, did they bank enough in that first batch to withstand the Republican advantage in the in the same day vote that then comes in? Um, certainly, the expectation in the Senate race and the governor's race is is that you know the, the Republicans are are in good position in both of them. What I'm interested to see in Florida, though, is Miami Dade County. Because one of the big stories from 2020 was this shift in the Hispanic vote moving away from Democrats toward Republicans. Miami-Dade was one of the biggest places where you saw that. Hillary Clinton had won Miami-Dade, heavily Hispanic uh, area. Uh, Hillary Clinton had won it by 30 points in 2016, uh, came all the way down to nine in 2020 for Biden. And I think mm. there's a chance that like DeSantis outright carries Miami-Dade County. And wow. if that happens, I think that's that's a major development. Um, if, even if it's just like a two or three point race, I just, I want to see the Miami Dade number. And I think we're going to get a real good sense of that real early. Right. Um, you know, there's a couple congressional districts in Florida too, that are the way the map was drawn there. They were expected to flip to the Republicans. We could, we could get that figured out pretty quickly, but I think Virginia is the one, uh, it also closes at seven o'clock and there's three congressional districts in Virginia that I, I think offer kind of three tiers at, in basically as bellwethers. One of them is the second district is down by Virginia Beach. Biden carried it by two points. It's a Democratic incumbent. And it's the kind of seat that like Republicans need to be winning the seats that Biden won by two points. If they do mm. that, if they do that, you know, if that's the threshold for them, they'll retake the House. It won't be an impressive night, but it's kind of a threshold for them. They got to win a race like that. Then you go from that to the seventh district of Virginia, um, which is uh, Abigail Spamberger's the Democrat who represents it. Biden won it by six points. 
if Republicans are able to flip that, now you're talking about not just taking the House, but by a solid margin. Now you're yeah. talking about, a, you know, I think, genuinely good night for Republicans. And then you could look up to the 10th district, which is right outside Washington, D.C. This is that area that over the last you know decade or two has gone really Democratic. Biden won it by 18 points. Um, Republicans are excited about the candidate they're running there. I don't think they're going to win the district. But if if we're a couple hours into the counting and that's like a, within five points or something, now I think you're talking like that's that signal some kind of wave is developing for the Republicans. Right. Uh, another big development that we've had is that New York is improbably actually become a pretty tight race. What are the polls saying right now about Hochul and, and Zeldin? Tough to say for sure, but yeah, mm. it's definitely on my radar. You know, you can you, there's some that show it, you know, razor thin. There's some some that show Hochul closer to, you know, a double, you know, a 10 point lead or so. So it's tough to say exactly where it stands, but it's right. closer, clearly much closer than Democrats thought it would be. Because if you look at, you know, Biden's there, Bill Clinton, you know, they're, they're calling out the big guns um, right. to really try to rescue Hochul. And it has huge implications for control of the House, because even if let's say Zeldin loses, but comes close, um, that would necessarily mean, I think, that he's running up big numbers on Long Island. Right. Four competitive congressional races on Long Island, two of them Democratic held. Um, does Lee Zeldin, with a strong performance on Long Island, lift Republicans to two wins, to two pickups of House seats on Long Island? <clears throat> There's three kind of in the Catskills, the Southern tier, Democratic held. Again, an area that if Zeldin is just, if he's competitive statewide, I think he's going to be winning those areas. Again, could he lift Republicans to three pickups? In, in that part of the state. I mean, I, I, there are five congressional districts in New York that Republicans could theoretically, I think, pick up um, potentially on Zeldin's coattails, even if Zeldin doesn't win, just, right. just if he makes it close. What do we know about turnout so far? Is this, it looks like this election is going to beat 2018, which was, you know, the, the, the highest turnout that we had seen on record. And see expectation. Yeah. And I mean, it's just stag- all the numbers are staggering starting in, in 2016. Um, right. If you went back to the 2014 midterm, the turnout for the was 86 million in the 2014 midterm. It jumped to 116 million in 2018. Um, that's that's how much interest that sort of Trump era created in politics. I I, I think the the best estimate is it's going to land somewhere between 120 and 130 million this time around. I mean, these are just which it, for a midterm are, is yeah. Yeah. If you told me ten years ago, twenty years ago, that these are numbers, we had one hundred sixty million in the presidential. Again, that's just right. never would have thought I'd see numbers like this. I mean, I think it has something to do with the nationalization of politics, which I do want to get into in a little bit. First, you mentioned that Florida has done a really good job of being efficient with vote counting. Other states, we anticipate they're going to do a bit oh, less efficient job. Pennsylvania, for example. Uh, what should we prepare? How long should we prepare the vote counting to go for? Yeah, long. Um, I don't think as long as 2020. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at it this way, in 2020, <clears throat> Pennsylvania was called and with it the presidency at 1130 a.m. the Saturday after the election. When that happened, we still hadn't called North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona and Nevada, yeah. all of which have big Senate races this year. Right. I, I suspect it won't be that drawn out this year, largely because fewer people. Pennsylvania, the, the biggest issue in Pennsylvania was mail. Um, it was the first time they were dealing with it on that scale. Um, I just think there'll be less mail this year. They mm. Unfortunately, they had an opportunity to create new procedures. If the legislature and the governor could have agreed, they could have created some new procedures to speed up the counting of the mail. They didn't do that. 
So the mail they do get will still be a chore for them. They're just not going to get as much. Mm. So I think they'll be quicker from that standpoint. And I think the state has created this incentive, a financial incentive for counties to stay open all night counting votes on election night, not to call it quits at midnight, to stay, you know, to go till they get them all counted. So that might help things too. So I think Pennsylvania, I, I, I'd be surprised if we, if it's a close race, I'd be very surprised if we got a call on election night. But if you got a call, a call the day later, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. Um, Georgia, we could, I, I, I think it's, it's very possible that we will know um, either whether someone's won it outright or if we're heading to a runoff by the end of that. When I say end of that night, I'm not including like two, three in the morning here. But I think, you know, again, it's, it's similar, like Georgia will have mail ballots really slowed things down in 2020. I think there'll be fewer mail ballots. And I think the procedure, part of that new voting law in Georgia, the procedure allows for the tallying of mail ballots on election day, which they couldn't do before. They can actually, they're sequestered at the at the uh, polling place. They can actually tally them, which, hmm. which, mean, which will make things go, I think, much faster. And I think it will allow counties to release, almost like you see in Florida, um, almost all their mail and early vote at least theoretically, we'll see if they if they actually follow through with it. But I think you you may get something like you have in Florida, where you get most of the vote reported out in that first hour, and then it's just the same day. Um, so there's potential for that the ones that I think are going to keep us really waiting are Arizona. It just that's the way it goes in Arizona. Um, they they basically can count the mail through you know a couple of days before the election. Then they account the election day vote, and then they start counting in, in over a period of days. They'll release every night more and more of the late arriving mail could be a three, four day process, you know, could be even longer. Depends how close the race is. Um, and Nevada too. Um, I think Nevada will keep us waiting. If it's again, that the variable here is if you get a blowout in one of these races, but if right. it's, you know, if we're talking within two points, I think it's a couple of days there as well. And now in 2020, that vote counting process was exploited by Donald Trump, the former president and his allies to suggest that the election was somehow fraudulent. He's already suggested that this time around it's rigged as well, of course, as have some of his preferred candidates. Are you f changing the way you cover this particular election to account for efforts to undermine it? Or do you just sort of keep that in mind, knowing that, you know, re that, that viewers need to be, I suppose, informed that this is a lengthy process and that that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something nefarious going on? Yeah, no, I mean, the best I can do is, is, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I try to think of it as a, I try to think of a viewer um, who is sort of puzzled by it in good faith. Because right. it can't, and, and, because I recognize, I, I mean, we have a whole conversation about vote counting procedures and election procedures and how there's been this massive expansion in the last two decades and the, the different ways people can vote and how the bureaucracy in a lot of states hasn't caught up with it. And it's created these situations where you can have these drawn out days long counts with the, it, where it swings dramatically. And, and I think there is a, a, a person of good faith who it, it's an undue burden on that person to insist that they understand the ins and outs of, well, don't you know, it's Thursday in Arizona, they're counting the second wave of late arriving mail ballots. These always trend Republican by 55 or 60. I mean, you, that's that's unreasonable to expect. I, I, you know, so I try to think of that viewer and I just try to think of I want to be able to give them the play by play in the moment of what what it is that is being counted at that moment and why the numbers are now changing in the way that they're changing so that it, it can make some sense to them. And, and you know, 
if, if I do my job, you know, there's only so much I can control. Um, and if, and if others out there are going to, um, you know, make claims or whatever, I mean, it's just, I, I can put the numbers, I can put the explanation, I can put the facts and, and, and that's, that's, I try to just operate with that sort of, you know, viewer of good faith in mind. The stakes in this election are higher than I think a lot of people realize, because if Republicans manage to attain a comfortable majority in the Senate, going into 2024, the landscape's pretty favorable to Republicans. And there's a chance that they could secure a trifecta. They could even secure a a filibuster-proof Senate majority. How likely a scenario do you think it is that in 2024, we see Republicans controlling the Senate, the House, the executive, possibly with a filibuster-proof Senate majority. Yeah, no. Look, the the Senate there's the Senate map for them is sets up fantastically. You know, in twenty twenty four, and it's just it's a product of Democrats of just the way this has played out for whatever reason. Twenty eighteen was a good Democratic year. Twenty twelve was a good Democratic year. Oh six was a great Democratic year, and from the Senate side, two thousand was a good Democratic year. So the same group of senators four straight election cycles, Democrats have gotten most of the breaks. And so that can really catch up to them in a big way in 2024. They're getting to the point where it almost has to. Um, And yeah, if they, you know, if Republicans get control of the House here, if they can get it by a substantial margin, make it difficult for Democrats in 2024. But the the big X factor there is just, obviously, is the presidency. And I, I, I couldn't forecast it two years out because... You know, we're ta- here we are talking so much about how the economy and inflation is driving this election. And tell me what that situation is going to look like in two years. And I think that'll tell you a lot about how the presidency is going to play out. Right. Let's talk about your new podcast, The Revolution with Steve Kornacki, which examines the 1994 midterm elections, uh, the so-called uh, Republican Revolution and the rise of Newt Gingrich. Tell us why those elections were so important and how they paved the way to our current political climate. It was a blast to do the podcast. And I think 94 is crucial because um, for folks who don't remember it or or have a a fuzzy memory of it, it was it's unfathomable now. But Democrats controlled the House of Representatives for 40 consecutive years from 1954 to 1994. And it wasn't even close. I mean, we're sitting here talking about Republicans needing to pick up five seats to get control of the House. Republicans couldn't even get over 200 total seats in the House for those 40 years. We didn't enter any of those elections with people talking about, well, the Republicans get it or won't they? It, it was just, a, it was called the Permanent Democratic Congress. That's how people referred to it. And um, it, it's it's a story basically of the nationalization of our politics. And somebody who understood that or understood that, that that's where things were going and that there was potential in that for, for Republicans in the House was Newt Gingrich. So it's also the story of Newt Gingrich because Newt Gingrich comes to the House in the late 70s, Republicans are absolutely buried in the minority. Um, Republican leaders don't believe it's even possible to ever have a majority. Certainly, the, that's the prevailing sentiment in Washington. And what Gingrich recognizes is two things. Number one, politically, he's seen that that there is a potential universe of Republican voters out there to, to give him a House majority. Because like in 1972, you know, Richard Nixon wins 49 states. He beats right. George McGovern. McGovern only gets 38%. And what Gingrich believes is if you nationalize politics through the media, you can get people, whatever congressional district you live in, if they can basically see the Democrat as George McGovern, they'll vote against the Democrat and Republicans could control the House. So the idea is stop making 
the race for the house, 435 individual races about who brings home the bacon or who paid, you know, who right. brought home the money for the bridge or whatever. No politics is local. Right. right. <laughs> Tip O'Neill was the house speaker at the time. And his, that was his saying, all politics is local. And Gingrich's theory was the exact opposite. Opposite. And he gets there and it's no coincidence. January 79, Gingrich gets to the house in TV cameras for the first time, come into the house chamber in March of 79. And Gingrich is the first person to get that. You've got the rise of cable news in the 80s with CNN, eventually MSNBC and Fox. You've got the rise of conservative talk radio by 1990. Rush Limbaugh's got 20 million listeners a week. And Gingrich is able to, and there's a series of sort of dramas that he kind of um, uh, creates in the house or exploits or whatever you want to say. Um, he's able to create these nationally compelling, nationally covered storylines that really, in his view, create clear, sharp contrast between the Democrats and the Republicans. And it all comes together in 94. And in night, it's 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 this it's this they call it the Republican Revolution. And and like until the moment it happened, nobody in Washington believed it could happen. And all of a sudden that night, Republicans gained 54 seats. They gained control. Newt Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House. And since then, you know, if if, if Republicans get control tomorrow, it'll be the fifth time since 94 that House, house controls flipped. We've just entered this new era of, of nationalized politics, of polarized politics. Most people are either on team blue or on team red control swings back and forth all the time. Um, and I think 94 is kind of the origin story of our politics today. I, that's one of the most fascinating elements of the podcast. And, you know, for us at media, I think one of the most interesting aspects of it is looking at how the media helped fuel that you have CNN in 1980, you have conservative talk radio that explodes in the 1990s, then you've got other cable news outlets. How important do you think those media outlets continue to be to the Democrat and the Republican Party today, do you still think that they are as vital to sort of Newt Gingrich's idea of nationalized politics as they were back in the 90s? Yeah, although I think that the big innovation since then is the, is the Internet, A, right. and B, social media. And I think mm -hmm. that's been the that's been the real driver of wherever the content's coming from. Some of the content comes from from television and just gets clipped and, and, and you know, becomes viral content online. But a lot of it is just self-generated. Um, but I think that's been the when we talk about the, 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 the level of interest in these elections, the nationalization, I also think there's a personalization of politics that social media is allowed where everybody now, you know, you can take out your iPhone and you can turn on your social media, you know, app of choice. And you, you so many people are now into politics and not only are they into politics, but they've selected, you know, 100 voices that they want to hear who are all pretty much telling them the same thing. And so it really intensifies their feelings of loyalty to one political tribe. And it really intensifies their feelings of animosity to the other tribe. And I think that heightens interest, that heightens turnout, that heightens people's sense of the stakes. It's why you get poll results like we we had a poll a couple of weeks ago here where we asked we asked Democrats, do you think if Republicans got power, they would potentially ruin America? And 80 percent said yes. We asked Republicans the same about Democrats. 80% said yes. More than 60% in polls now. Democrats and Republicans say they'd be upset if their child married a member of the other political party. I mean, these are numbers you used to get for interracial marriage 50 years ago. I mean, that's that's the, the and I, I think it's at one point in time, cable news was probably driving it. I, I think it's social media social now media. Has, has just really, it has become the new force that's really doing it. I also think, you know, you also see it in the media a lot. Let's take Fox News, for example. There are these national issues that politicians run on, like crime. 
And one of the things that Fox News has really done over the last couple of years is that they'll take local crime stories. Let's say there's a video of you know someone robbing a store in Duluth, and they'll make it an example of a national crime story. And so I think it's happened in the media as well that there's been a nationalization of the news uh, in this country. No, it, completely. It is. It's. It's. You know, you, you talk to people from around the country, and they're not eager to tell you about the 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 dam that uh, their congressman uh, got funded in their district. Right. <laughs> they want to talk about the characters they're seeing on television. You know. Right. How did Newt Gingrich go about achieving those goals when he sought to pull off the Republican Revolution? Was it through speaking to the media, or was there a broader effort to really make politics national? He did a couple of things. One was just, I mean, C-SPAN was a revolutionary thing in the House. The creation, you know, cable television was just coming into mm-hmm. being. And Brian Lamb uh, convinced uh, the, the cable television operators to, to create this channel um, that everybody with cable would get. And you would get gavel to gavel coverage of the House of Representatives. It's the ultimate public service. But part of House rules were that at the end of any business day, members could claim time on the floor for any reason they wanted. Well, before there were cameras there, there was no reason for anybody to do this. What they would essentially do is they would read like a congratulatory statement about their local Little League team into the congressional record. And then the local newspaper could say, hey, they were congratulated on the floor of, you know, that was the whole purpose of these special order speeches. Gingrich recognized that it was free airtime. And every year, you know, a couple million more people were getting cable TV. So he organized a group of the like-minded Republicans, and they just started claiming the time, you know, constantly. And what it, what really they were doing when you go back and watch it was they it was a it was a forerunner to conservative talk radio or conservative cable news. I mean, they were producing their own show and they were talking about national themes. And they and and that was that was Gingrich's whole thing. It was that that you know there needed to be clear contra, de, clear definition and contrast definition of what the Republican Party was. He, he wanted it defined as a party about conservatism, about opportunity, about individualism, contrast with a Democratic Party that he wanted to be associated with what he would call the liberal welfare state. And so it was all about driving those themes in these speeches. So they built a grassroots following outside of Washington. That was a that was a big part of it. And then institutionally, he, what he started doing was he basically started, he wanted Republicans who were, who'd been in the minority 10, 20, 30 years to feel that they were being trampled by the, the Democrats were getting complacent and arrogant. And in a lot of ways, the Democrats were getting complacent and arrogant and were trampling on the Republicans. And, and Gingrich, there were a series of these, these sort of moments. Um, he had a famous you know, confrontation on the House floor with Tip O'Neill when Tip O'Neill was the speaker. And Gingrich actually basically got O'Neill reprimanded. And it was just this shocking thing to see happen. And you could just see Republicans start to go, oh, wait. I didn't know we could do this. And, and then there was this there was this whole drama where Democrats, it was a disputed election in Indiana and it took nine months and Democrats basically muscled through their candidate and, and Republicans were irate and Gingrich let a walk out and that moment. And then Gingrich ends up, it builds towards the late 80s. He takes down the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill's successor, Jim Wright from Texas. Gingrich goes after him uh, on ethics charges and Wright is forced to resign in the sheer you know, the, the seeing a sitting House speaker forced to resign because of a campaign run by Newt Gingrich, um, it, it dramatically enhanced his power with Republicans in the House. They saw this guy just doing things that they didn't think were possible. And by the 90s, it really the House Republicans had become Gingrich was their de facto leader. And, and then he gets, he gets to this point. It's, it's amazing. In 1993, Bob Michael, a man from Peoria, Illinois, 70 years old, has been in Congress since 1956, has never served one second 
of one minute, of one hour, of one day in the majority, he will tell you. And he announces he's going to retire after the 94 elections. And we play this in the podcast, his retirement speech. He still at that moment is asked about it. He cannot fathom that Republicans in the foreseeable future will ever get the majority. He says, if I thought we could get the majority, I'd stick around. Stick around. And of course, a year later, they get it. He couldn't see it coming. (laughs) Now, uh, I just have a couple more questions about the midterms, if you'll allow me. I'm a little in awe of your stamina this week. You spent the weekend covering the Breeders' Cup, (laughs) uh, and now you're back at MSNBC to cover the midterms, which is obviously going to be a real marathon. How do you prepare for a big night and let's say nights like the midterm elections? Yeah, well, with all the money I lost at the Breeders' Cup, I have no <laughs> choice but to work this week now. I need to pay it off. Um, nah, it's it's just, uh, look, Tuesday is just, I, I know what I'm getting into now. There's, you know, we're, we'll go right through the night Tuesday into Wednesday. And um, from that point forward, I, I don't know. It's just going to, it'll it'll depend on those factors we were talking about before, Um which races are still outstanding. Right. And, um, you know, we, we know like Arizona, we get these nightly batches. Maricopa County, by far the biggest in the state. It's about 9 p.m. We get these updates every night um, from them. So, you know, be around for those until we get an Arizona call. Nevada, a little less clear. But um, and, and, and it's just we'll reassess Wednesday afternoon exactly, um, you know, what we need to do. In 2020, we stayed till saturday at 11 30 and i came in saturday uh i got in first thing saturday morning expecting i was there for the weekend um so it was actually how much were you sleeping that week uh very i i, I went through tonight two full night. I, I was an idiot because the thursday night of that week uh about 10 11 o'clock the votes were coming in pretty fast from pennsylvania and biden uh-huh. was closing the gap and i thought He's going to Biden's going to catch Trump in the count overnight. And I want to be I've done I've put in enough. Let me right. be on the air when that happens, especially yeah. if who knows, maybe they end up calling it or something. So they were I was supposed to leave at midnight, come back at six. And I left the building and, and I'm just I'm in my head. I'm like, ah, let, let me just I, I they're going to keep counting. Let me be there for it. So I called my boss. He says, hey, if, if you go back on, you're on, you know, until the morning and then you're on the next day, too. I said, no, it's fine. I got it. And I, I go back to the station on air, the, the workstation, and I've got, I had called up video feeds of all the big counties in Pennsylvania. They had video feeds of the, of the count. And um, I see now all the lights are turned off and they've gone home for the night. And I said, <laughs> oh my gosh, what have, I, I'm now trapped. I'm now trapped. There's going to oh, be no, no votes all night. So so I stayed through tonight and got nothing from Pennsylvania. Then it was oh, at 8, 8 a.m. Biden caught him that Friday morning. Is it diet, diet Cokes? Is that how you do it? Uh, coffee, diet coffee, Coke, yeah, that kind, yeah. Of, that kind of stuff, yeah. And try, and try not to eat because that'll anything I eat. Oh, that knock stuff. you out. Oh yeah, any kind of carb or something is just gonna smart. You know, you go into that. You know. Uh, my last question: uh, Are the khakis still Gap? Uh, yeah, I really don't have anything new since then. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it'll be a good season for Gap sales then. Um, Steve Kornacki, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I was happy to do it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Steve Kornacki on Mediaite.com.